You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Alison Shocknessy. In the summer of 1991, a newlywed couple were beginning to settle into life together in their first home. They had moved into a flat in a three-storey over-basement terraced house in Vardens Road, Battersea, in southwest London. 21-year-old Alison was born in London, though her parents were originally from Pilltown, County Kilkenny. Bobby and Brita Blackmore had moved from Pilltown shortly after they got married, and Bobby eventually started working as a bus driver. The Blackmores had four children, two daughters, including Alison, and two sons. Despite living in England's capital city, the family retained close links with the Pilltown area. They often made trips home to visit relatives, and Alison even made her first Holy Communion in the parish church. It was at that same church that she married her husband, John Shocknessy, in June of 1990. 29-year-old John also came from an Irish family. Born in Dublin and raised in Ballantubber, County Roscommon, he had come from a large family of 11 children. After moving to London, John had met Alison in a pub and they'd hit it off. A relationship blossomed from there. Alison worked as a Barclays bank clerk and John was a purchasing manager at Churchill Clinic, a private hospital in Lambeth. The young couple spent their time working and socialising while they set up their first home and made plans for their future. They seemed like any other happy newlywed couple, full of optimism as they looked forward to the rest of their lives together. But on Monday, June 3rd, 1991, John arrived home at around half past eight to find his wife lying dead on the landing of their first floor flat. She had been brutally attacked with a knife. A full-scale murder investigation was quickly launched by the Metropolitan Police. Officers conducted door-to-door inquiries in an effort to learn if any of the Shocknessy's neighbours had seen or heard anything that was connected to Alison's death. They were hoping for something that would indicate what had happened and who might be responsible for the unthinkable killing of the young woman. Detective Superintendent Tom Glendenning led the investigation, He spoke with the press and said that Alison had endured a, quote, ferocious attack, during which she sustained multiple stab wounds. It was thought that the weapon used by the killer was a flick or sheath knife with a five-inch blade. Detective Superintendent Glenn Denning said that after an initial examination of the scene, the investigators had not found any evidence of forced entry to the flat. Nothing seemed to be missing from the couple's home, and there were no obvious signs of sexual assault. Detective Superintendent Glenn Denning also said that there was no question of family involvement. Allison's husband had discovered her in a pool of blood when he arrived home. He was extremely distressed and he was not considered to be a suspect in the murder. During the initial stages of the investigation, the police believed that Allison had been surprised by her assailant who had somehow managed to gain entry into the house. Her keys were found next to her body and it appeared as though she had used them to open the door herself. 
Sometime after that, she had encountered her attacker and it was clear she had put up a tremendous fight. There were no issues noted within Alison's social circle or at her office, so the police believed that her attacker had been a complete stranger. The lead investigator arranged to have a reconstruction of Alison's last movements during the final 30 minutes of her life carried out. She had been carrying a box-shaped handbag with chrome clasps on a shoulder strap. The bag itself was quite unusual and striking, and it was hoped that this might jog the public's memory. The police also asked that the public report anyone in the area who had suspicious cuts or blood-stained clothing after Alison's killing. On Wednesday the 5th, Detective Superintendent Glenn Denning said that they had established that Alison had left the Barclays branch on the Strand in central London where she worked and had taken a bus to Waterloo Station. Here, she caught the train to Clapham Junction and from the station, she made her way to the flat on foot. It was around a 10-minute walk, so she'd arrived home at approximately 6pm. The investigators presumed that she had been followed to her home from the station or that someone had been lying in wait either outside or inside the flat and then attacked her as she entered. Because of the frenzied nature of the attack, it seemed possible that Alison knew her attacker or she had interrupted a would-be burglar. The defensive wounds found on Alison's body indicated that she had fought back and it was likely that the person who killed her would have had scratches on their face or arms. On the evening of June 10th, the Met Police established checkpoints near the Shocknessy's flat and at Clapham Junction Station. The Varden Road area was congested with traffic jams as motorists were stopped and asked if they had seen anything on the night of the murder. Nearby, on a corner in plain sight, stood a woman who bore a likeness to Alison, and commuters were asked if they had seen someone like her. That night, Alison's widower, John Shocknessy, made an appeal. In an article for the Irish Independent, Bernard Purcell wrote that John looked pale and distressed as he told the press, quote, Alison didn't deserve anything like this. There are plenty of people out there who may have seen something. I beg them to go to the police. Whoever is responsible for this is not human. My wife would not hurt anybody and didn't deserve this. She would have walked away from any argument. Alison's remains were flown to Ireland on June 21st for a burial in her family's home place of Pilltown. Her requiem mass took place a week later in the same church that she'd been married in. By June 24th, Fergal Keane for the Evening Express reported that Scotland Yard was investigating the possibility that Alison's killing might be linked to a, quote, bizarre serial killer who stalks his victims from railway stations. There were two other unsolved cases, one of a woman, another of an elderly man, who had been stabbed or beaten to death in or near London train stations. It was hoped that reviewing those files would reveal information about Alison's killer. As there was no significant progress in the case by late July, Barclays Bank offered a reward of up to £25,000 for more information. There was finally a break in the case when on August 7th, three women were arrested by the police and held overnight in separate stations for questioning. Two of the women were 21-year-old accounts worker Michelle Taylor and her 18-year-old sister, who worked as a domestic assistant. Michelle worked at the Churchill Clinic, the same private hospital where Alison's husband, John, worked, and she had reportedly attended both the Shocknessy's wedding and Alison's funeral in Kilkenny. 
The sisters' parents said that their daughters had been, quote, hounded by police in recent weeks. Their mother, Anne Taylor, told reporters that the notion that Michelle and Lisa had been involved in Alison's death was nonsense and that they had cast-iron alibis. Michelle and Lisa Taylor appeared at the Southwestern Magistrates Court in Lavender Hill, London, on Friday the 9th of August, where they were jointly charged with the murder of Alison Shocknessy. Their father, 49-year-old Derek Taylor, was also set to appear before the court later that month on a charge of possessing a deadly weapon, a knife, when a mop in his possession was unscrewed and it was discovered inside. The pair were held without bond and remanded into custody, an order that caused both young women to burst into tears in the courtroom. Eventually, though, both Derek and Lisa were granted police bail, but Michelle was not. By the time the trial began on the 6th of July 1992 at the Old Bailey, it had already been learned through the committal proceedings that Michelle Taylor had a motive to kill Allison. On the first day of the trial in court number eight, the public gallery was filled to the brim as the sisters, with their fair hair crimped in similar styles, sat in the dock to face the murder charges. Mr John Nutting appeared on behalf of the Crown Prosecution. He outlined for the court that Michelle had been having an affair with John Shocknessy since 1989, but John Shocknessy was under the impression that, quote, their relationship in no way affected his marriage. John had moved to the UK in 1985 and lived in staff accommodation in the Lambeth Hospital until after he was married. He had met Alison in 1986 and, around the same time that they'd got engaged just over two years later, John began an affair with his co-worker, Michelle. Michelle had also lived in the staff wing at Lambeth. Alison had never had another boyfriend before meeting John and her mother had told the court during the committal hearings that John was Alison's whole life. According to her workmates, Alison was a bit shy, but she was also a, quote, conscientious, willing and professional person. Alison had been a bit annoyed by her husband's close relationship with Michelle Taylor, but she'd been a bit naive and immature, and she didn't know that the two had been engaged in an affair, nor did she imagine the depth of Michelle's feelings for John. Michelle had even attended the couple's wedding, a trip that was paid for by John. Sheila Walsh, who had also been at the wedding, said that Michelle had stayed with her during the celebration and she thought that the young woman was polite. Sheila recalled that Michelle had been the one to iron John's shirt for his wedding and she'd seemed quite chuffed to have been able to do that for him. Michelle had pretended to be friends with Alison, even going to the pub with her and so on, in order to preserve her relationship with John and to keep Alison's suspicions at bay. On the evening of the murder, the court heard that Michelle had helped John arrange flowers in the private medical office and that they'd had sex before Michelle drove John home. They had both discovered Alison's body at the flat. Fingerprints and witness descriptions had placed Michelle and Lisa Taylor in the vicinity of the murder earlier that afternoon. But when they were questioned by the police, they said that they had both been in Bromley in Kent at the time. Bank records later showed that Michelle Taylor had withdrawn £10 from a cash machine in Lambeth North at 20 past three. A car similar to Michelle's white Sierra had been seen in the Varden Road area at the time of the murder too. Michelle had stated during her police interview that on the day of Alison's death she had gone to the flat with John to have a quick chat with Alison and to use the bathroom. 
When she saw her lying on the floor and the blood that was everywhere, she began to scream. After making the supposed discovery, Michelle had run to a nearby pub and started shouting hysterically, quote, Please phone the police. My friend has been killed. The pathologist who conducted Allison's post-mortem examination said that the cause of death had been blood loss due to multiple stab wounds, but in particular it was a stab wound to Allison's throat that he considered to be fatal. He estimated that the attack had occurred any time between 4pm and 8pm that evening, and he counted 54 stab wounds in total. There were bruises on Allison's face, head and hands, and defensive wounds showed that she had certainly put up a struggle. A four-inch stab wound in her chest had penetrated her lung, and another slashed her throat, severing an artery. After Alison's death, neither Michelle nor John told the police about their affair, for different reasons. They both finally admitted it after Michelle's arrest on August 7th. At this point, Michelle told the police that she had felt sorry for Alison because John was unfaithful to her, but she admitted that she also hated Alison because she was with John. Michelle denied having anything to do with Alison's murder. She said that she and her sister Lisa had been at the clinic with a friend at the time. Their friend had corroborated this story, but later admitted that it was not true. Lisa had told the police that she had never been to the Shocknessy's flat, but her fingerprints were found inside the front door, and she had been identified in a lineup by a witness who saw two women running from the flat. During the trial, the Crown Prosecutor said that Michelle Taylor was obsessed with John, and she knew that John would never leave Alison or divorce her. In fact, John had told her this outright before. According to Mr Nutting, the evidence would show that on June 3rd of the previous year, Michelle and Lisa had gone to the Shocknessy's flat with the intention of killing Alison. They had waited for Alison to arrive home from work and then gained access to the flat on, quote, some pretext or other. When they reached the stairs, the women had attacked Alison and stabbed her multiple times. The prosecutor said, quote, Michelle struck at Alison with a knife. She vainly tried to defend herself. Michelle's attack became more frenzied and more violent. She hit at her victim, her rival, again and again with the knife. At least two blows proved fatal. After this, the Taylor sisters had made their way back to Lambeth to the clinic where Michelle had sex with John and later drove him home to discover his wife's body. John had not known about Michelle's plan, but her diary had revealed her true thoughts. The court would hear that Michelle's diary entries illustrated her intense jealousy and hatred of Alison Shocknessy. She had documented failed attempts to make John jealous too. In an entry written in October 1990, Michelle had written, quote, I hate Alison, the unwashed bitch. My dream solution would be for Alison to disappear as if she'd never existed, and then maybe I could give everything I wanted to the man I love. Another entry detailed a time when Michelle had walked in on the newlyweds in bed together at the staff quarters in Lambeth. She said, quote, Used would be the word I felt at this moment. I am crying right now. The prosecutor told the court that the diary was a, quote, sinister forecast of what was to come. On Tuesday the 7th of July 1992, John Shocknessy took to the witness box. He was very emotional while giving evidence, so much so that he was permitted to take a seat just five minutes into his testimony, 
as he had become so distraught that he couldn't stand, as was customary to do. John told the court that just two weeks after Alison's death, Michelle had travelled to Ireland with him to attend one of his brother's weddings. John said that Michelle had convinced him to let her share his hotel room, and he said he had only agreed to do this on the condition that they would not continue the affair. She could just stay in the room. But once there, Michelle had disregarded John's request. He told the court she attempted to resume our old relationship, but I was not willing. John said he had seen Michelle as a friend. She was always offering to help with things, and she had showed nothing beyond a good friendship. He did not have any strong feelings for Michelle, but admitted that he could have told her otherwise after a few drinks. He said, quote, Alison, I loved. John told the court that he had informed Michelle that he had not intended their relationship to be long-term. He just wanted to be friends. He said that they would have sex twice a month, and when he told her that it was over, she was angry, but also seemed like she agreed. John said, quote, she would always come back and again be a bit forward about things like that. On the afternoon of June 3rd, the day Alison was killed, John said that he had received a phone call at work from Michelle. He thought she'd told him that she was at her family home and might not make it in time to pick up flowers that need to be arranged in the clinic. He said that he would pick them up himself from Waterloo Station. When he got back, Michelle was there. He told the court that she seemed quiet and apologised for being late, and that evening she drove him home. He said he had taken a lift with Michelle as she was to pick up some pots for miniature trees for the office. On the way home, he had stopped to get flowers for Alison. When he arrived at the flat, he noticed that the lock was undone and commented on the strangeness of it to Michelle. As he turned the corner after mounting the first flight of stairs, he saw Alison on the ground. The jury were shown a photo of the scene on the landing where Alison's body was discovered. John said that when he saw his wife's body, he threw his briefcase and the flowers he had brought home for her aside. He could see that she was injured, but he didn't move her. John told the court that he had run down to a neighbour to raise the alarm and Michelle had run out of the building crying. She returned with three men from a nearby pub. When he was cross-examined by the defence barrister Richard Ferguson, Queen's counsel, as it was at the time, appearing on behalf of Michelle, John said that he had made a mistake in not finishing things with Michelle and in not coming clean to Alison. Mr Ferguson put it to John that he was eight years older than Michelle and could have walked away. John agreed and said that he had been weak. As testimony wrapped up for the first day, John spoke through tears about his last interaction with Alison on the morning of her death. He had given her a kiss before he left to catch the bus to work. When the trial resumed the following day, Mr Ferguson continued his cross-examination of John Shocknessy and asked him if it was true that he had had sex with Michelle on the morning of his wedding. John denied the allegation but admitted that Michelle had slept in a separate bed in his room the night before he was married. He said she'd come to his room that night simply to have a chat as they had not had a chance to speak earlier that day and she ended up staying. Lady Anne Malaloo, Queen's counsel, appeared defending Lisa Taylor. She asked John if he had slept with any other women during his marriage to Alison, and John said that he hadn't. She then asked if there was anyone who stood to benefit financially from Alison's death. John replied, quote, certainly not, and said that while he did receive an £18,000 pension paid out after Alison's death, she did not have a life insurance policy in effect. 
Mr. Nutting for the Crown then brought John Shocknessy through a series of questions relating to whether or not he himself had been involved in Alison's murder. John denied stabbing his wife, wishing her dead, or having anything to do with her death, as he wept on the stand. On Thursday the 9th of July, the jury heard from a doctor who lived on Varden's Road. Dr Unsworth White had left work at half five and cycled home. The cycle usually took him about 15 minutes. As he made his way along his road, he saw two girls come down some steps. When they reached the pavement, Dr Unsworth White said that they turned and began jogging towards him. Later, when the police asked if he had seen anything on the day of the murder, he had brought police to the stairs where he had seen the girls running from. The doctor informed the court that it was number 41, where the Shockmissies lived. The witness described the two girls as in their early 20s, both wearing tracksuits or running-type clothing. Both had blonde hair. One of them wore her hair in a ponytail. Dr Unsworth White said something about the girls had struck him as strange. It jarred him. One of the girls had a bag. They looked as if they were going running, but the doctor said, quote, Clearly, you don't carry a bag if you're going running around the block. It was a bulky bag, and my impression was that perhaps they were taking some clothes to the laundry. It had struck him later that they were actually headed in the opposite direction of the nearest laundry, though. It seemed very suspicious, and he had never seen either of the women in the road before. He continued and said, quote, They were not covered in blood or wielding axes or anything like that. They were not sprinting for cover or anything. They moved down the steps briskly. I saw the door open and they were going through the door as they hit the step. As they moved out, a man filled the space. They pushed the door to, not closed, and the man was in the doorway. He opened the door fully and came down as well. The court then heard from pathologist Professor Rufus Crompton, who gave evidence of Alison's post-mortem examination. On the basis of his examination, the professor had concluded that the weapon used was likely a sharp knife of about five inches long, though he did not rule out that more than one weapon might have been used. Professor Crompton told the court that Allison had been standing facing her attacker when the incident began. Twenty-four stab wounds were present on the front of her body, through which he said Allison would have been conscious. One of these injuries was a cut to her neck which had severed her windpipe and an artery. The pathologist estimated that within a few seconds of that blow, Alison had fallen unconscious as she lay on the floor on her stomach face down. However, 30 more stab wounds were evident from the continued attack on her. He described the assault as frenzied and continued, quote, The wounds were inflicted in rapid succession. It could have been done in two or three minutes. Crompton testified that it was his opinion, based on the level of force used in the act of stabbing, that Allison's attacker or attackers had been a woman. Throughout the pathologist's evidence, John Shocknessy sat in the body of the courtroom with his head in his hands, clearly distressed. The following day, the court heard from Mr. Kevin Trot of the Trustees Savings Bank, who advised that Michelle Taylor had withdrawn £10 from her account in a location in Lambeth on the day of Allison's death. The prosecutor noted that this was not where Michelle said she was that day. She had claimed to have been in Bromley in Kent. Mr. Trot also told the court that Michelle had never reported her bank card stolen or missing, nor did she complain about an unauthorised transaction on her account that day. 
Ian Finley had been in a pub near Varden's Road on the day of the murder. He testified that he had been with two friends when Michelle Taylor entered and began hysterically screaming. Mr. Finlay recalled that she had rushed into the pub and was, quote, very disturbed about something. She said, help me, help me, call the police, my friend is dead. Mr. Finlay and his friends had stood and left the bar with Michelle to see if they could help in any way. When they arrived outside number 41, Mr. Finlay saw John Shocknessy standing on the path. He described John as being in shock. John asked if the men had called the police and then asked, is she dead? Tell me she's not dead. One of the other men in the group had what Mr. Finlay described as a, quote, mobile yuppie phone and attempted to ring 999 while Mr. Finlay and his friend Roger Nichols went inside and up the stairs to where Alison lay. According to Ian Finlay, Mr. Nichols had felt for a pulse on Alison's neck and told Finlay he thought that Alison's throat had been cut. Alison appeared to have fallen wedged in the doorframe and Mr. Finlay said, quote, she looked pretty dead to me. A statement made by Michelle Taylor to the police was then read to the court. In it, she outlined how she had given John a lift that evening before heading up to the flat with him as she wanted to have a chat with Alison. Michelle had recalled that John made note that the deadlock to the front door was not engaged and she had followed him up the stairs when she heard him suddenly begin to yell out Alison's name. Michelle said that she had run up the remaining stairs and then saw Alison lying on her stomach on the landing facing away from the stairs and the doorway. Michelle had initially thought Alison had collapsed. John had turned to her and said, quote, I don't know what happened. Michelle said she had gone to Alison and tried to pick her up, but she was stiff and had blood on her mouth. She looked for a pulse, but eventually Michelle said she realised Alison was dead. Michelle had then started screaming and ran down to the local pub to get help. Michelle had been asked by police if she had any knowledge of any difficulties in the Shocknessy marriage, including affairs. At that time, she had told them about a girl in Ireland called Natalie, a former girlfriend, who often wrote letters to John. Alison had told her that the contact was causing arguments at home. Michelle also believed that when John had travelled to America on holiday for a week the previous March, he had met up with a woman called Kathy. Michelle believed that Kathy was his girlfriend. Michelle's statement made no mention of her own affair with John Shocknessy. Before the proceedings ended for that weekend, the presiding judge, Justice Blofeld, addressed the jury and reiterated that they were to ignore any press regarding the trial or the case. Complaints had been made to the court regarding some of the media coverage, which included the publishing of photographs of Alison and John's wedding, with one photo showing Michelle kissing John. When the trial resumed on Monday morning, the court heard from John Young, a forensic officer from Scotland Yard. Mr. Young had examined the Shocknessy's flat after Alison's death for signs of a break-in. A likely point of entry for an intruder was the window on the landing at the back of the house. Mr. Young looked at the window itself, the flat roof that was outside it, and the nearby drain pipe on the back wall of the house for signs that they had been used in the course of a break-in. He found no such signs and told the court that if there had been a break-in, he would have expected scuffing marks, fingerprints, shoe prints or handprints on some of these surfaces, but there was nothing. More police evidence was heard from Detective Constable Angela Thomas, who had interviewed Michelle Taylor after the investigators uncovered her affair with John Shocknessy. 
Michelle had told her that she loved John, but sometimes thought, quote, it would be nice to have someone of her own to make a commitment to. The defendant had also told DC Thomas that she didn't think Alison knew about the affair, though there were rumours of it in the workplace. Michelle said in the interview that she liked Alison, and on one occasion, after they had gone out together for the evening, Alison had told her she was glad that they were friends. The jury heard that Michelle had named a friend, Jeanette Tapp, as an alibi for the afternoon of the murder. Miss Tapp had initially corroborated the account, but she later admitted that she had lied. Detective Constable Thomas said Michelle had outlined her movements that day in detail, saying she and her sister had been in Bromley looking for a dress for Lisa, but they'd found nothing. Then they returned to the clinic and met up with John, as Michelle had made plans to help him with the flower arrangements. She then gave John a lift. When they left Lambeth, Lisa had been playing Monopoly. When Detective Constable Thomas was cross-examined by Michelle's counsel, Mr Ferguson, He asked her if, while involved in a search of the Lambeth Clinic, she had asked Michelle to, quote, look me in the face and tell me you do not know anything about the murder. And then, quote, if I find out you did, I'll come round here and kick you out the fucking window. The detective constable firmly denied making any such comments to the defendant. Detective Chief Superintendent Thomas Glendenning gave evidence that he had asked for authorization to bug a meeting between the two defendants and their mother at Battersea Police Station when they went there voluntarily to make witness statements. The Chief Superintendent acknowledged that this was a, quote, extremely unusual step in an investigation. Detective Sergeant Bernard Gleason told the court that there had been nothing in this 45-minute conversation which contradicted Michelle's alibi. In fact, Michelle had said, quote, If I had something to hide, I would be worried, but I'm not. Her mother had commented that the police were probably listening and reassured her daughter that she had done nothing wrong. Detective Sergeant Jerry Gallagher told the court that he had interviewed Michelle after her arrest on August 7th. Michelle had told him that she found out about John's relationship with Alison and the fact that they were engaged some months after she had begun a relationship with him. The news was broken to her by a receptionist at the Lambeth Clinic. Michelle admitted she had never had the sort of relationship she had had with John before and that she loved him and that he'd told her that he loved her. She had been devastated when she returned from holiday and heard about the engagement. She had made excuses to leave work early that day and went home to her mum. According to the detective sergeant, after Michelle found out about the engagement, she had told John she didn't want to see him again and she didn't speak to him for a few months. Eventually, though, they began talking again and the relationship resumed. Michelle's diary entries were also read to the court. She wrote often about her relationship with John and included discussions they had had about how John didn't want to cause problems in his marriage and that the affair would not go on forever. He also said he looked forward to Michelle finding someone nice. The entries detailed her love for John and how he would get jealous if she showed interest in others or was less than receptive to his affections. He had gotten angry once when she had told him that she felt used. Further diary entries read the following day, the 7th of the trial, reiterated the complications of their relationship and John's apparent lack of awareness of the emotional effect that this was having on Michelle. 
He had told her all about a special trip he had booked for him and Alison for her 21st and was excited to share that the couple would be travelling first class and having champagne and so on. On Wednesday the 15th, 26-year-old Jeanette Tapp took to the stand. After Alison's murder, Jeanette said that Michelle and Lisa had told her that they were with her in her room in the Lambeth Clinic that evening at the time of the murder, around a quarter to six. Jeanette knew this was not true, but they assured her that they had nothing to do with Alison's death, and so Jeanette gave two statements to the police to that effect, that the girls had been with her. Jeanette told the court, quote, I was a bag of nerves. I could not handle what I had done. I was too frightened to go back to the police and tell them the truth. I didn't know what to do. It seemed to me that I was more frightened and worried than anyone else. Michelle's seemed to be so calm. Such was Jeanette's worry about her statements to police that she had even gone and spoken to the sister's mother. Jeanette told Mrs. Taylor that she had not been with Lisa and Michelle that evening, and according to Jeanette, the other woman went on to try and persuade her that she had been with the girls. Jeanette was arrested alongside Lisa and Michelle on the 7th of August the year before, where she was questioned on suspicion of conspiracy to murder. Jeanette admitted to police that she had lied in her statements and that she had not been with the Taylors that evening. Instead, Jeanette told the court that she had been at her mother's house until around 7pm and only then had she returned to her rooms at the Lambeth Clinic. That was when she had seen Lisa and Michelle. Lisa had been waiting for Jeanette in her room and Michelle was helping John with the flower arrangements, as was usual for her for Monday evenings. The only other thing she had done that day was to take a trip to a local supermarket. The witness explained that lying to the police had been very difficult for her. She felt a heavy burden of guilt for what she had done and Jeanette said this guilt had affected her to the extent that she couldn't concentrate on her work and had trouble sleeping at night. Jeanette testified that she knew about Alison through John and knew that John had loved his wife very much. She thought that Michelle and John were friends, though she was aware that the two had gone out together before John's engagement to Alison. Jeanette told the court that after Michelle had left to give John a lift home, Lisa had stayed in her room playing Monopoly. That evening, they got a call to the clinic informing them about Alison's death. Jeanette recalled that on hearing this, Lisa had gone pure white and, quote, she cried, just cried even more and went pure white. Jeanette had poured her a stiff drink to try and calm her nerves. Jeanette was cross-examined by Mr. Ferguson for Michelle where she confirmed that she had initially weaved a very elaborate deceit to police, but insisted that the evidence she had given before the court was the truth. Jeanette's mother also took to the stand to confirm that her daughter had been at her home on the evening of the 3rd of July the year before. A fingerprint expert from Scotland Yard also appeared before the court that day. Eric Milne had examined a number of fingerprints found near the scene of Alison's death on the 4th of July. Mr. Milne had identified 40 fingerprints there. Eleven of those were left unidentified and the court was told that they belonged to anywhere between two and seven people. Three prints, which he had matched to those of Michelle Taylor, were found on a banister and a finger and thumb print matched to Lisa were left on the inside of the Shocknessy's front door. Mr. Milne suggested that they could have been made as Lisa gently closed the door. The mark was positioned such that the witness said Lisa must have been inside when she touched the door. 
The expert also made the claim that the fingerprints had all been left at the same time, and within 48 to 72 hours of his check for fingerprints on the scene, because his powder had adhered to them easily, which suggested to him that they were, quote, fresh. On the final day of the prosecution's case, Adrian Eames from the Met Police Lab gave evidence as the jury were shown pictures of the black sweatshirt Alison had been wearing the day she died. Mr Eames said he had identified 44 knife cuts into the garment, but had been struck by the lack of blood at the scene. The expert said, quote, I would assume that much of the bleeding had been internal, and that external bleeding would have been absorbed by her clothing. Mr Eames confirmed during cross-examination that he had taken hair samples from both defendants, but had found no material at the flash matching them. After examining shoes belonging to the Taylor sisters, he found no blood material. No fingerprints had been found in what little blood there was, either. Mr Justice Blowfield then asked if it would be accurate to say that no DNA, blood evidence or, quote, scientific material was found which linked the defendants to Alison's killing. Mr Eames agreed with the judge's assessment. On Monday the 20th of July, Richard Ferguson delivered his opening statement on behalf of Michelle Taylor. He asserted that there was, quote, simply no evidence against his client and asked the jury to consider what exactly they had heard until that point which was evidence against Michelle. There was no one who identified Michelle at the scene at the time of Allison's killing and no forensic evidence linking her to the crime. He also said that a woman who lived downstairs in the house had seen Alison pass by her window sometime between 6 and 6.30. At that time, Michelle was in work with John Shocknessy. Defence counsel then went on to discuss what the prosecution had presented, Michelle's apparent motive for the murder. Mr Ferguson said that the Crown had painted Michelle as a jealous mistress and pointed to the affair itself and Michelle's diary as evidence of this. However, Ferguson argued that an affair was not uncommon and, quote, scarcely in this day and age a motive for murder. Further, Michelle's diary entries regarding the affair and her feelings towards Alison couldn't be taken as literal or evidence of her intent to carry out the murder. Ferguson said, quote, what a teenage girl confides in her diary is not to be taken as a declaration of intent. Who can say that at no time in their lives they have not wished someone would at least disappear, but it does not mean that they are going to kill the person. Mr Ferguson also noted that the media had seized on the contents of Michelle's diary to sensationalise the case in the press, which, he noted, meant that coverage was hostile towards Michelle. But the jury would hear that not only did the defendant lack the hatred and jealousy alleged to have been the motive for Alison's death, the affair at the centre of the state's case was in fact, quote, dead or dying at the time. Ferguson ended his statement by saying, quote, one could understand Michelle turning against the man who had seduced her and who had casually used her love for his own sexual gratification. But as for Alison, you will hear from Michelle that she had nothing towards her but feelings of friendship tinged with sympathy. Ferguson pointed out that Michelle had not blackmailed John or threatened to tell Alison of the affair. Surely, this would have been a much easier way to solve Michelle's so-called problems. Then, Michelle Taylor took to the stand to testify in her own defence. 
Michelle outlined for the lawyer the beginning of her relationship with John Shocknessy and revealed she had made a note of the first time they'd slept together in her diary. She had begun avoiding John after learning of his engagement, but then she had changed her job and the two were required to work closer together. It was after this that their relationship had resumed. Michelle went on to tell the jury about attending John and Alison's wedding in Ireland. She said she had been initially booked into a B&B, but then got a room in the hotel John was staying in. She attended a party the night before where Alison and her family were not present and said that afterwards John had called her and asked her to come to his room. Michelle maintained that John and she had slept together that night. But after they returned from Ireland, Michelle told the court that her feelings about and for John had changed and said that this was due in part to spending time with Alison. They'd gone out for a meal together on Alison's 21st birthday and Michelle said they had a really good time. After dinner, they returned to the defendant's room in the clinic and according to Michelle, Alison had shown her ticket stubs from a film and asked whether she had gone to see the film with John while they were in Ireland. Michelle had never seen that movie either, though, and assumed that John must have taken someone else. Alison also showed her letters from a girl in Ireland to John. It was after this Michelle testified, quote, I realised I was just being used along with Alison and the other girls. I could not bear to be with John Shocknessy and I did not want a relationship with him anymore. Commenting on the entries in her diary, which the prosecution had pointed to as evidence of her jealousy and motive for murder, Michelle told Mr. Ferguson that she had not meant that she wanted Alison dead and that any feelings of hate she had had towards Alison had only lasted a day or two. She had actually wanted to be friends with Alison, but felt she couldn't because of John. Michelle's testimony then turned to the state of the affair between her and John between December 1990 and June 3rd, when Alison died. In the early part of that year, John was more of a friend, although very occasionally, at his instigation, she said they would sleep together. That had not occurred for some months before Alison's death, though, and by June, Michelle told the court that she saw John as just a friend and considered the affair over. She said she also saw Alison as a friend. The defendant went on to outline her version of events leading up to the day of Alison's death. According to Michelle, early in May, John had asked her and her sister Lisa to go to the Shocknessy home and clean the windows there because of the family's access to cleaning materials. But when she was told that they could be cleaned by just leaning outside, Alison had told the girls that she would do them herself. And so both she and her sister Lisa had been in the Shocknessy flat. On June 3rd, Michelle testified that she and her sister had gone to Bromley to shop. They had arrived at about a quarter past three. Michelle had not taken her bank card with her. She had left it in her bag in Jeanette Tapp's room and said that Jeanette had used her card before with Michelle's permission three times. It was her assumption that the withdrawal from her account that day had been made by Jeanette or some other person. Michelle and Lisa had returned to the clinic at 20 past five and watched TV. Then she'd helped John with the flower arranging and gave him a lift out to Varden's Road. Michelle said they'd gone into the house and while he was ahead of her, John had started shouting. Michelle thought Alison had collapsed and tried to get her pulse but found nothing and she noticed that Alison was very cold. On the stand, Michelle said she couldn't remember anything more detailed then just that she went to the pub and got the men. Michelle further recalled that on her return to the flat, 
She had pulled down Alison's skirt and opened a window to get fresh air in. She said she'd felt sick. On the stand, Michelle asked to take a break as she came to describe what happened next, and this was granted by the judge. When she resumed the stand, Michelle said that John had tried to have sex with her three weeks after Alison's death while they were in Ireland, and she had been disgusted by this behaviour. Quote, I told him he was very confused and needed to sort himself out. Asked if she wanted Alison dead, if that was what the reference to Alison's disappearance in her diary meant, Michelle had stated, quote, That is not true. It just means that if she had not been there from the beginning, if I had known John before he'd known Alison, if there had been no Alison, there would have been no problems. Michelle was briefly cross-examined by Lady Anne Malalu, appearing for her sister Lisa. She said that Lisa did not like John and would not have encouraged her relationship with him. Michelle was then cross-examined by Mr. Nutting for the Crown Prosecution. She was asked again about the comment in her diary regarding Alison disappearing and she replied, quote, When I wrote that, I was very emotionally upset. There was a lot going through my mind. At that time, I could not be friends with Alison because I was sleeping with her husband. As time went on, I realised it was not Alison I hated. It was John. Nutting said she had told the police that she was still engaged in the affair when she was arrested and that she said she had loved and needed John. Michelle became upset and alleged that she'd been bullied by one of the police officers in the case and that the female officer had threatened her, so she had said things that she didn't mean. Quote, She kept threatening me over the table. She kept shouting at me saying that I was seeing John and that I'd killed Alison. She bullied me in the interview room. She made me feel small and she made me cry. I didn't sign any of those papers. I was threatened. I wanted to get out of there as quick as possible. I wanted to be with my mum and dad. I wanted to go home. The prosecutor, bluntly and with apology, put it to Michelle that she had known John wouldn't leave Alison for her and feared that the two would move to Ireland and so she had planned Alison's death. Michelle said, me and my sister did not kill Alison. Michelle said she had been lying to police when she told them Lisa had never been to the flat. She had said this in order to distance Lisa from the investigation and Alison's home. The following day, a statement from 74-year-old Christina Wright, a neighbour of the Shocknesses, was read to the court. The court was told that the older woman was too frail to attend in person. Mrs. Wright lived in the basement flat of the house where the Shocknesses lived. She described Alison as a very nice, pleasant girl. On the 3rd of June the previous year, Mrs. Wright said she had been watching the news on BBC One and had noticed Alison arriving back at the flat during that time, which would have been sometime between six and half past six, meaning Alison couldn't have been killed at the time the prosecution had alleged. Philip Beeston, a friend of Michelle's, was called to testify that he had seen Michelle and Lisa in Bromley. However, he could not recall the date or time he had stopped to chat with the girls. Ms. Malaloo for Lisa Taylor then informed the court that they would not be calling on any evidence. Mr. Nutting began his closing statement for the prosecution on Wednesday the 22nd of July 1992. He said that Alison could only have been killed by someone that she knew. He asserted that because Michelle and Lisa had tried to set up an alibi before Alison's death, only they could be the killers. Quote, only they knew she was dead and the time of her death. 
This was not a murder committed for sexual gratification by a stranger. There is not the slightest evidence of any form of sexual assault or attack, nor is there any evidence of any intruder or that the house had been forced in any way. Nutting said Michelle had been obsessed with John, as seen in her diary. She was, quote, deeply emotional and wanted her rival out of the way. Nutting questioned the notion that the affair was over by the time Alison had died, given John told the court that they were still sleeping together. The plan to kill Alison had been a last desperate act, he said. But Nutting had no doubt that Michelle now, quote, bitterly regretted the wasted months and years with that really rather worthless human being. John. John was planning on giving up flower arranging on Mondays, which was Michelle's only real time with him, and this must have hurt Michelle greatly, he said. There was a tiny window of opportunity for Michelle to have carried out the crime, less than six minutes once the journey back to the private clinic was taken into account. There were loose ends, Nutting said, used by the defence to confuse and deflect. Jewellery was missing from the flat and there was the sighting of a man in the door of the house. He acknowledged that the prosecution couldn't give a certain identity of this man. Richard Ferguson told the jury that there was very little evidence against the two sisters and said that this was frightening. The motive the Crown had provided was pathetic and there were a number of different ways Michelle could have achieved her so-called goal of having John all to herself if she'd truly wanted this. Lady Malaloo gave her closing statement in defence of Lisa Taylor the following day. She said that the Crown had presented no evidence of her client's guilt. The injuries that the pathologist had described in the court did not match the narrative that had been presented by the prosecution. Stab wounds initially inflicted to Alison's front indicated that she hadn't been attacked by someone after she had opened her flat door and was facing into the flat to enter. Her wounds were, quote, characteristic of the cornered intruder. Lady Malaloo continued, quote, There is no evidence that makes Lisa Taylor guilty of murder. Where evidence is thin or non-existent, as it is in this case, the temptation to guess or speculate is enormous. But guesswork and speculation are not evidence, and nor is suspicion. Lisa's defence counsel said that the fingerprint expert had given testimony that was beyond scientific judgment when he'd said that Lisa's prints on the door had been fresh, and the expert had gone on to acknowledge that ageing fingerprints was a, quote, art rather than a science. She said, quote, Cases like this are potentially highly dangerous. They contain the stuff of which miscarriages of justice are made. There is absolutely nothing heard in this court to suggest this young girl is anything other than a perfectly normal teenager. The accusations against her were patently absurd. After the judge's summation, the jury retired to deliberate. When the decision of the seven women and five men was read aloud, Michelle Taylor stared straight ahead as her younger sister sobbed into folded arms. They had found the Taylor sisters guilty of the murder of Alison Shocknessy. The rest of the Taylor family gasped and held each other. Even a woman sitting in the jury broke into tears at the verdict. Mr Justice Blowfield said that after the 14-day trial and careful consideration of the evidence by the jury, the two women had been found guilty of this, quote, terrible crime. The sisters held hands and wept as the judge passed down a life sentence for them both. Michelle was seen to be clutching a Bible and a small picture of Jesus. Solicitors for the Taylors said that they would be appealing. (music) 
After the verdict, when John Shocknessy arrived back in the court, he had not been present for the verdict, he hugged members of the family and spoke with them. He had shown little emotion throughout the trial, despite the close examination of his own behaviour through the hearings. He said, quote, It's good to see it's all over and justice has been done at the end of the day. Allison can rest in peace now. We know that those two people have been sent to prison. After he had given evidence, Shocknessy had said, quote, Allison was a sweet and gentle person. I never thought I was doing anything that would wreck what was between us. Michelle pestered me and hung around all the time. I allowed her to get under my skin. I just wish she had never come into my life. One of the senior investigators, reported by the Irish press to have spent a great deal of time with John Shocknessy, told a reporter, quote, His parents must have thought he had won the pools when he walked in with her. She was the perfect wife. He is an arrogant, pompous little man who believes he is God's gift to women and still thinks he's done nothing wrong. With Michelle chasing him, he was on an ego trip and used her just as a tool to satisfy his lust. Alison's mother, Mrs. Breda Blackmore, told the Irish press, quote, Alison was a very private person, but I knew my daughter. I would have been the quickest to know if anything was wrong. John and Alison were always together. They were inseparable. I told her she was lucky to have a man who went shopping with her. After Alison died, John couldn't go back to the flat and he had no place to go and so had moved in with Alison's parents. Breda said, quote, I'm sure there is many a man who has made a mistake. She said she had complex emotions about her son-in-law and did not want to make detailed comments about it. She did say, however, quote, We are still a family. We will be talking to John. We will all get together as a family. The Taylor's solicitor said that they were in tears when he went to see the sisters in the cells and that they were understandably very upset. On the 6th of August, Michelle Taylor spoke to the press. Rather than being held at a juvenile prison, Lisa and Michelle were being allowed to share a cell in Holloway Prison in London. Michelle said her sister cried every day and that she was desperate to go home. Such was Lisa's distress, Michelle said that she would be prepared to stay in prison if it meant that Lisa could go home. Details of the appeal emerged in the days after, indicating that the media coverage of the trial would be a point raised on behalf of the women. By December of 1992, reports revealed that in addition to complaints regarding media cover, in particular a photograph published by the British Sun newspaper that the Taylor's legal team alleged was doctored to give the appearance of an open-mouth kiss between Michelle and John. The appeal would also include testimony from a new witness who was said to be able to put the Taylors far from the scene of Alison's death at the time of her fatal stabbing. Solicitor Michael Holmes said, quote, We will be asking for the court to say that in the media climate in which the matter was fought out, the Taylor girls could not get a fair trial. Secondly, we will be asking if the court is prepared to make a practice direction as to the amount of press coverage there should be of a trial. This would be the first time the Court of Appeal would be asked to consider the matter of media coverage solely as causing prejudice to the defendant in a trial. A date for the appeal was set quickly. In early June, news broke that a social worker had spoken to a TV news outlet in London and said that a vagrant had confessed to her that he had killed Alison. He had been living rough in the Strand at the time. The social worker had brought this information to the police, who had looked at the man who was named. Detectives had then ruled him out of the investigation as a suspect. 
Meanwhile, Alison's parents said that they would attend the hearings in the appeal, but after that it was their intention to move home to Ireland. Breda revealed that John Shocknessy was not in regular contact with them. The last they spoke was about six months before at Christmas, and it was Mrs Blackmore's understanding that he was, quote, starting a new life in the west of Ireland. Michelle and Lisa Taylor's appeal opened on Thursday the 10th of June, before Lord Justice McCowan and Justices Douglas Brown and Tucky. Mr Richard Ferguson, Queen's Counsel, told the three-judge panel that in August of 1991, Dr Unsworth White, a witness in the case against the Taylors, had spoken to DC Angela Thomas and said that one of the women he saw leaving the Shocknessy flat may have been black. This information had not been made available to the defence, nor was it brought up during trial, despite the DC in question being present for most of that procedure. Mr Ferguson said that this amounted to a, quote, material irregularity. Police had failed to turn over evidence that concerned the only witness who had put the two women at Alison's home. It emerged that Dr Unsworth White had changed his account of that evening a number of times, including having initially told police that he saw nothing unusual at all. The doctor and his fiancée had also attempted to collect the reward for information that had been offered by the bank that Alison had worked for. The fact that the girls he had reported to have seen were moving quickly and were carrying a laundry bag had gone some way to support the Crown's case that the tailors had been rushing to complete their tasks, and the presence of this laundry bag had explained the absence of evidence of the attack on their clothing and so on. 162 witnesses had been interviewed by police, yet just a few of these were made available to the defence. Alison's elderly neighbour recalled seeing her at about 6pm, by which time it was clear that Michelle and Lisa had arrived at the clinic, and this woman had also had a visitor that day who could corroborate her recollection now too. Police had concealed this witness from the defence. Ferguson also told the appeals court that the defence team had in recent times discovered the identity of the person they would suggest was in fact Alison's killer. There was no physical or forensic evidence linking Michelle and Lisa to the scene. The main witness was unreliable and the less than 25-minute window they would have had to commit the murder just added to the improbability of their guilt. Michelle and Lisa's convictions were overturned due to the withholding of evidence and for the prejudicial nature of the media coverage of the proceeding itself. They had been denied a fair trial, and so were released. Mr Justice McCowan was critical of the police and of the press. Of the police, the Lord Justice said that he could only conclude that the information regarding this witness and his testimony had been withheld because the Crown knew it would be damaging to their case. To the media coverage, he said it was, quote, not reporting, but comment and the press had, quote, no more right to assume the guilt of the girls than a police officer had to convince himself that they were guilty and suppress evidence. Lord Justice McCowan said that he would refer the case to the Attorney General for that office to consider whether action should be taken against the papers involved. When the court delivered its judgment, the public gallery, which was full of supporters of the Taylor sisters, erupted in cheers. Lord Justice McCowan had to call for order, but the two girls simply looked at each other and gave nothing away. Outside the court, their mother said the girls would be going straight to church to give thanks for the answering of their prayers. Michelle and Lisa were bundled into a blue van waiting for them outside the court complex. 
Meanwhile, the Blackmore family were devastated. Mrs. Blackmore's sister, Mary Tynan from Kilkenny, told the Irish press, quote, It was not unexpected, but we were devastated. At this moment, all I think about is my sister, her husband and family in London. We have been in constant contact. I was at the trial at the Old Bailey and I know how we felt when the girls were convicted. We felt Alison could rest in peace. Now the girls are out. I just don't know. I think it is over. There will not be any more about it. In response to criticism of the press coverage in the decision, the Sun newspaper wholeheartedly denied any wrongdoing. They said that the coverage of the trial had only been sensationalist because the case itself was sensational. The picture complained of had been taken from a video and not doctored at all. The kiss it betrayed was not something that was in question and was a fact. The spokesperson asked why it was that the issue of media coverage had not been brought up during the original trial if it had been so objectionable. They then went on to criticise the judiciary as a whole as being elitist. In Ireland, reporters tracked down John Shocknessy, who had moved to Kerry and was living an anonymous life to that point. But when the media arrived, he spoke to the Irish press. John told Mairead Carey that despite earlier reports, he had been in regular contact with Alison's family and that he was planning a trip to London, quote, to see if anything can be done about the appeals court decision. He had until that point been trying to put his life back together, focusing only on his business and visiting Alison's grave in Kilkenny. John left Killarney shortly after when the British tabloid press descended. He spoke out again after pictures of him were published, alongside claims that he had a new girlfriend. He denied this strenuously, pointing out that the woman he was pictured with was in fact his niece, and telling the Irish press that the accusations were all very upsetting, and that he was just trying to pull his life back together. The press had also begun asking the obvious question. If the Taylor sisters hadn't killed Alison, then who had? Many suggested a burglar. It seemed that they had now dismissed testimony from the pathologist who said that a woman had killed Alison. The Observer newspaper had reported that a pathologist from the Home Office, Albert Hunt, had been prepared to give evidence at the appeal that Alison had in fact been killed by someone taller than her, after having studied the pattern of the wounds on Alison's body. And so the media had moved on to the notion that the suspect could be a man. Suspicion was cast on John Shocknessy once more. His family said that Mr. Shocknessy was the victim of a witch hunt. Danny Shocknessy told the Irish press, quote, People keep forgetting he lost his wife, and he's convinced that last week's verdict is wrong. For their part, Michelle and Lisa Taylor told the media they intended to fight to have the investigation into Alison's death reopened. Scotland Yard refused to comment on the matter. The following month, July of 1993, the Police Complaints Authority in London launched an investigation into complaints made by Michelle and Lisa Taylor in the investigation against them, which ran alongside an internal inquiry by the Metropolitan Police into the handling of the case. Derek and Anne Taylor did an interview with the British Independent and spoke about the girls and what the family had gone through after their conviction. They alleged that Michelle and Lisa had been drugged while in Holloway Prison and their parents had to kick up a fuss to have them taken off medication. Derek Taylor told the paper that just a few weeks after his daughter's arrests, he lost the family cleaning business. and his wife, had effectively stopped eating and had lost three stone, subsisting on cups of tea and cigarettes. But after their release, the parents said that the girls weren't bitter. They were utterly changed by the experience, but had kept up their senses of humour 
and were going about trying to build their lives back up again. Anne told the paper that she would like to speak to Alison's parents, though she knew this prospect was unlikely. She wanted to tell them the full story, noting that the Blackmores only knew what the police and the prosecution had told them, which hadn't been held up in the appeals court. Anne said she was concerned about Alison's mum's welfare. In November of 1994, the report into the police investigation was made public. It had been carried out by a chief superintendent of the Metropolitan Police under the supervision of the Police Complaints Authority. This was then handed over to the Crown Prosecution Service and was considered carefully. After this, it was decided that there was insufficient evidence to bring any cases against police officers involved in the investigation. The matter was closed. The Taylor sisters did manage to get permission from the High Court to challenge an Attorney General's Office decision not to charge certain newspapers with contempt of court for their coverage of the case, in particular the still from the wedding video showing Michelle kissing John. The sisters would be able to pursue judicial review of this decision. The Taylor sisters appeared in court again in 1995, this time in relation to a claim of breach of confidence and breach of contract alleged against a former friend. Bernard O'Mahony had campaigned for them when they were in prison, but the Taylors came to believe that he had passed on confidential information to tabloids about them. The parties appeared in court in June of 1995, agreeing that both sides would refrain from contacting the press over the issue to be heard. The sisters also claimed O'Mahony, a nightclub bouncer, had been stalking them and other members of their family. In August of 1995, the judicial review hearing was held before the High Court. Lawyers for the Taylors argued that the Attorney General had acted unlawfully and irrationally by not bringing charges of contempt against the papers, with the AG's office saying it had decided that they didn't think there would be a successful conviction for contempt. And though the judges at the High Court said that the coverage of the sisters' trial, quote, crossed the acceptable limits of fair and accurate reporting by a substantial margin, they accepted the Attorney General Office's opinion that the contempt charges would fail. This decision was not one that was open to legal challenge. A solicitor acting for the Taylors, Mark Stevens, said that they would be bringing their case to the House of Lords, noting that it was an issue of public importance and that it would raise bigger questions about the role of the Attorney General, an office that was mostly unaccountable for the decisions it made. Four months later, however, the House of Lords upheld the High Court decision. In July of 1997, the Irish Independent reported that Alison's brother, Robert Blackmore, had hired lawyers to investigate the possibility of taking a civil action against the Taylor sisters in relation to Alison's death. He did note, however, that he had passed the six-year time limit on taking an action and cost would also be an issue, but the balance of probabilities might work in their favour. In March of 2001, it was reported that the investigation into Alison's murder might be reopened. Her family welcomed the move. Brita Blackmore said, quote, I was devastated. It was so hard for us to comprehend. John adored Alison, and never in a million years would I have suspected him of cheating on her. Yet apparently, Michelle, who had been a guest at their wedding, had shared a bed with John the night before they were married. When we heard that, Bobby and I made a conscious decision that once the trial was over, we would have nothing more to do with him. We wanted to keep a united front for the trial, but beyond that, we didn't see much point in carrying on the pretense that we were one happy family. We knew we would never get an apology from John. 
so there was no point in talking to him about his behaviour. For my part, the only way to cope was to put him out of my mind, otherwise bitterness and anger would have eaten away at me. Brida said that they had waited eight years and they were finally feeling like something positive could happen. But by June of 2005, Brida Blackmore said she had given up hope that her daughter's killer or killers would ever be brought to court. The family had been told that a retrial in the case involving the Taylor sisters would be impossible without some sort of new evidence, despite the double jeopardy law being scrapped in England and Wales the month before. John Shocknessy remarried in August of 1998. To date, no one has been held responsible for the murder of Alison Shocknessy, and the case remains unsolved. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Rafael Nendel Flores, Kate Lynch, Louise Amanda, CS677, Wayne Wheeler, and Carly. Please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Winita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead, with additional writing assistance this week from Eileen McFarlane. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Lady Anne Malalu, Lady Anne Malalu, Queen's Council, Lady Anne Malalu, Queen's, Lady Anne Malalu, Queen's Council.